0: So I walked down the stage, like they looked up on the curtain, and you just see me come out and I'm smiling, I'm smiling from ear to ear. And then I just start singing, If You Believe. And my daughter was like pointing at me, kept pointing, kept pointing. And all I felt was just like pure joy. At that moment, I felt pure joy. Cause I'm like, I'm doing this for her. This is what I'm doing this for. I'm making her happy and She can see me like literally in person, and she doesn't have to see me in these green clothes. She can see me in this sparkly, beautiful dress and hold on to that.
1: In part one of our two-part podcast about family through the walls, we spoke with Ebony Underwood, who detailed her experience as the daughter of an incarcerated father. In part two, we explored this issue of carceral family separation from another angle through the eyes of a formerly incarcerated mother. In this section of the podcast, we had the pleasure of hearing from Dinesha Payne, who shares special relationships with both Kate Meissner, prison and justice writing program director, and Robbie Pollock, program manager. Dinesha, who prefers being called by her first name, you'll hear why in the episode, is a talented actress and singer. During her time at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, she participated in Rehabilitation Through the Arts, a program that brings theater, writing, and music into correctional facilities. No longer behind bars, Dinesha is now the program coordinator of the Young Woman's Initiative at Drama Club, a nonprofit organization that provides theater programming and mentorship to young, justice-involved individuals in New York City. Drawing on her experience with the justice system, in the arts, and as a mom, Dinesha connects meaningfully with the young people she teaches and mentors. This podcast episode is less of a formal interview and more of a raw conversation between two reunited friends with shared history. In her discussion with Kates, Denesia spoke intimately and honestly about her experience parenting behind bars and about how this experience was shaped by her involvement with the arts. We are so grateful to Danesia for sharing her powerful story, modeling what it means to be open and vulnerable. With family relationships through the walls now under severe duress due to the pandemic, we hope that this conversation moves you to action. You can find resources for getting involved by visiting pen.org slash works of justice. I'm Nicolette Natale and thank you for listening to part two of this week's Works of Justice podcast as part of our ongoing series, Temperature Check, COVID-19 Behind Bars. So
2: first of all, hi, it's really fantastic to see you. You look gorgeous. I was saying earlier, I've never seen you in your own clothes. So it's really (laughs) exciting to see how fly you look and beautiful and with long hair and it's (laughs) it's fantastic. Maybe we can give our listeners some context about how we know each other.
0: First of all, I want to say thank you for having me. This is, like, fantastic. I'm so honored to be here with you and sharing this space. It's unfortunate that we have to do it over, like, this Zoom or Blue whatever platform, but, you know, the best that we can do. All right, so I'm going to tell you, like, the first time that I met you. The first time that I met you, you had on these hoop earrings. Yeah, uh I'm going to go there. You had these hoop gold earrings on. Your haircut was, like, short on one side. Then you had, like, this long tail piece on the left side. And I was wondering, like, what exactly is she doing? you had, like, this costume jewelry that was really loud. You know, some really cute jeans. Like, you look really cute. But what grabbed my attention was your costume jewelry and your haircut. I was like, I'm wondering who this lady is and what is she doing? so you're sitting there you're greeting everybody hey how you doing i'm case how you doing i'm nervous as hell because i don't know what's about to happen and then you start saying how you guys feel about like just writing like just literally writing what's on your mind just writing in my mind i was saying i don't really know if i want to do that Things that's in my mind right now i don't really want to share and the way that you facilitated the class you just made it like really comfortable for everyone to get to that comfort level of expressing themselves and sharing out things that were trapped in their head So for me, a big one was talking about my daughter. That was very hard for me and I just didn't do it. Um, and also about my crime, like the actual day of the crime, I never really discussed it. I never talked about, but the first time that I did was in your class, I wrote it down and I remember like writing it down, like very like vaguely. And you were like, no, I want you to keep going with that, go deeper. And then like week after week, I would just keep going deeper and deeper. And at the end with the finished product, it was just like, my hands are like shaking right now. It was like so hard because I was like, oh my God, like I'm traveling to this place. I wanted to forget about it. I don't want to think about it, but it's trapped and I need to get some kind of like outlet to get it out. And I was just, I was freaked out. I was literally freaked out. But what I admire most about you is your ability to make people feel comfortable, right, and to make them feel human. Because, as you know, my name in Bedford Hills was Pain. Like, that's what everyone called me. My last name is Pain. So they would refer to me as Pain, but you did not. You referred to me as my first name, which is denasia And I appreciated that so much because not a lot of people did that. Um, and it made me feel human. It made me feel like I was a person and not just a number and not just Pain. That was the first time that I met you. And that's how that experience was for me. And then, you know, now we're here, which is so amazing. Like, what, seven years later? (laughs) I did not expect
2: to get that story today, but I am so moved and touched, and I remember very, very well the day that you shared that piece. And uh, there was never a prompt to share about your crime. That wasn't something that we asked people to do, so you were ready to go there. And I remember how much support you also got in that room, and I remember there were tears. And I remember really moving through that together. And so you made a huge impact on me, too. So it's incredibly special to get to be in this context on the same side of the wall with your daughter, present (laughs) with you every day, and get to share about that. And I could brag about you. um, (laughs) You're a fantastic writer and communicator. You're a fantastic actor, a fantastic singer. And you also brought so much life to that room. You have such a sunny spirit, and you helped. Facilitate other people to feel like they were also supported to share their stories. Uh, you were a big cheerleader for others. So thank you for that gift of reflection. I'm I'm also holding back a lot of emotion right here and in, in my heart it's welling right up and. uh
0: whew. It's so crazy because I like you know how you feel like, like like that little ball in your throat when it starts mm-hmm. to get like really hard and you can't swallow and it's like you know you're about to cry like I felt like that and I was like you know what. Just take it back like you know just take a seat and just think about the positive part of it like you know it changed my life like it allowed me to how can i say this without being like mushy it allowed me to break those chains that i had that were holding on to me and i could not like figure out how to get from bondage i could not figure out how to be free Mm -hmm. and that's real that's so real and so honest and i'm just going to give it to you straight like i just felt trapped in my crime i felt trapped and i didn't know how to get out and i didn't know who to talk to because you don't want to talk to everybody about your situations you don't want to like indulge in those kind of conversations there's a lot of trauma a lot of hurt there for me you made it easy to access that part of me and i swear to god i'm not lying Now to this day, it's much easier for me to talk about my situation, about my crime. Like I don't feel like that feeling of oh I can't do what I can't do it. I can't do it. No. I don't feel like that. It's it's my story and I need to get it out there. And I need to feel comfortable in my own shoes. And I just wanna say, I swear to God, Kate, like I really appreciate you and what you brought to the table for me and for thousands of women in that prison that came in and out. You know what I mean? Like, you're Mm. dope, man. For real, you're dope. I'm just gonna say that.
2: You and all the other women in our class changed my life pretty profoundly, as you know, <laughs> that it's become the center of my life, this work now. So it's very mutual. And I wasn't expecting to have this moment, but I'm so grateful for it. And I could stay here forever, of course, because it feels wonderful. <laughs> but I want to also, you know, talk about the content of our podcast, but also I want to congratulate you on your role at Drama Club and hope you could share a little bit about that because now you're the facilitator. So.
0: Oh, my God. It's so scary. Um, So, yeah, I am a program coordinator for Drama Club, and I am also a supervisor, which is pretty cool. I deal with at-risk youth that were formerly incarcerated or incarcerated individuals or individuals that have been impacted by the justice system. What that basically means is I go into different facilities like Acorn, Horizons, Rikers Island, different places, detention centers, and I teach them improv, which is an acting technique. It helps them navigate through real-life situations. And one of our big rules is yes and. So you accept the offer that is given to you and you just go with it. And in life, it's hard to just go with the flow. It's very easy to, like, resist and be confrontational so what we try to teach is like no just accept it own it and deal with it and figure out the best possible way that you can handle that situation so i realized with my situation of my incarceration um that i made a lot of mistakes and i just want the young people in my community to learn from my mistakes so that they don't have to go through the same things that i went through of course everyone's walk is different and their situations are different but I can help somebody not go through domestic violence. So I can help someone not go through the prison system just by me interacting with them and growing that bond and mentoring them. So with my role, that's what I basically do.
2: I love to hear (laughs) that. You know, I used to also teach young women on Rikers Island, and I used to teach young men at Crossroads, particularly the young women on Rikers. I just think, man, what if they had you instead of me? I think it would have been so powerful and I know what they get from your spirit and from your teachings and from your wisdom. I know that it's profound. So thank you. So beautiful (laughs) to see. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, it's true. It's just true. So moving into the heart of this and thinking about, you know, young people's experience through the walls and thinking about yes. writing about your daughter that, that took time for you to talk about. But then once you did, you know, we heard a lot about Jayla. I wanna know what were some of the biggest changes for you when you started parenting from prison? What was that journey like? How old was Jayla? How old were you? Because you were a young parent, no?
0: Mm-hmm,
2: yeah, okay.
0: oh man. I'm gonna tell you right now, this is so crazy because this is a confirmation for me. Last night in rehearsal, I directed a scene and I had two actors play myself and my daughter. This is literally wow. last night. And it went into some really heavy like stuff. A lot of things came up that I was feeling at the time. And it's just so crazy that now you're asking me a similar question. Um, I left Jayla when she was three. I was 21 and um, I didn't know how to be a parent. I didn't know how to be a parent. Even before my incarceration, I always had, like, those motherly instincts. That's just something that I had. But I didn't know how to do it right, so to say. Like, what what is the right way, you know? But then once I was incarcerated, I was like, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to even tell her that I'm in prison. I don't even know how I'm going to tell her about my crime. And even still to this day, she does not know exactly what I've done. What I was able to do was I was able to explain to her at a certain age, like, you know, mommy made a mistake and I'm on a grown up timeout. That's what I told her. I said, I'm on a grown up timeout. And that means that I got in trouble for something that I was not supposed to do. Just like when you are in trouble, you go on timeout. The same thing with mommy. Mommy is on an adult timeout and I cannot come home right now. That's basically what I told her. And she kind of understood. She didn't handle it pretty well. She's just like, well, who can I talk to? So that you can come home because you're not bad like i know that you're a good mom so you could just come home and it was so crazy because last night that exact line came out in a scene and i didn't prompt the person or nothing it was just like improv completely jayla had a hard time with adjusting to me being absent in her life and she suffered from like connecting emotionally with her parents like with myself and her father she would just cry for everything like you drop a pen she's crying You close a book and she's reading it, she's crying, or like any little things. The only way for her to express herself was through crying. And I had to realize that the best way for me to be a mother to her is to comfort her and to meet her where she's at, right? So I can't tell her, You're not crying for a reason, stop crying. That's what you would tell your child if she was home or he, hey, why are you crying? There's no reason for you to be crying, let's just do XYZ. However, in this situation, it was very delicate because there's a lot of trauma behind it. And A lot of behavioral issues as well like things that she could not identify with you know i'm not a professional either i'm just a mom you know and so i just try to do the best that i can do what i was given um she would come you know just hold her that's all i could do and if she wanted me to do her hair i would do her hair or if she wanted to read a book we would go read books or she wanted to paint and one thing that she really loved that i did and i would always constantly do it i worked in the visiting room so the children's center I would take pictures with all the Disney bulletins that we had. So we would have like Olaf and Frozen. We had that for like months. And every time I went to work, I would take a picture with Olaf and I would send it off to her, right? So on the actual Polaroids, I would put Olaf and Jayla. And then I would put like, you know, Mommy loves you. And then I would put the year and the day and the time. And then I would write her a letter and put like glitter all over it. It was just like things that she would like. And she kept those pictures. She kept those letters. Yeah. Yeah. That was the best way that I can parent. And I didn't try to do anything extra. I didn't try to like reprimand her because, like, I'm your mother and you got to listen. No, it wasn't like that. It was just based off of like, I'm going to explain to you what I require and what, you know, I expect from you as far as my expectations of you as my daughter. But I'm also going to handle that with a kitty glove because you don't really understand yet. You're too young to understand. So that's where I was at with that.
2: Wow. I I really admire your approach to Anasia, and I had this experience once at Bedford in the visiting room, the waiting trailer, when I was leaving, I think from getting fingerprinting done. But there was a dad and his, and his kid in there who was maybe five or six, and, you know, he was chatting with me. He clearly needed someone to talk to, and he didn't know that my role was, uh, you know— creative writing teacher. He just saw me as somebody else in plain clothes, right? And he pointed to his son who was playing with the toys and said he thinks his mom is training to be a police officer. And that story really uh, stuck with me and broke my heart for a lot of reasons. Um, and I don't mean to say that his response was bad. Who's to say I would know what to do in the scenario? Sure. But I think that you being able to translate to your daughter in terms she could understand what was happening is pretty impressive. So I just wanted to give you that feedback. I'm like, thank you. Wow. That's pretty meaningful. I'm curious knowing that she was three and young through those years, what was it like when she wasn't visiting? Were you able to talk on the phone? How do you talk on the phone with a three year old? How did you maintain that connection? What were you up against in that scenario?
0: So I thought about this like time and time again. And like, I knew that this probably would come up, but I just figured, like, maybe I should lie, right? That's what I was thinking in my mind. I'm going to be honest. I said to myself, like, maybe I should just lie and not tell the truth. One, that's not going to do you or I justice, right? And I just figured, like, let me just tell the truth. Uh, When Jayla was really young, when I was going through the system, I didn't really communicate with her. I didn't because I didn't know how and I didn't know what to say. And I just felt like I didn't want to touch it because I was just like very afraid of it. I was afraid and I didn't know how to handle it. That's just being honest. And um, when she started to get a little older, when she was like in second grade, I felt more comfortable with like having the phone conversations on the phone. I would have the basic conversations like, oh, hey, what did you eat? How was school? That kind of thing. But when it came to like talking about stuff, I could not handle it. And I would go on the visiting floor, and I would see her, and that will be cool. And then when I come off the visiting floor, I would just forget about her completely. Like, I didn't have a daughter. I would erase her from my mind. And the reason why I did that was because I could not handle the fact that I had a child in the world that I could not protect. I could not do nothing for If she was hurt, I could not, go, I could not help her. I could not feed her. I could not hold her. I could not kiss her. I couldn't do anything for her. She was holding on to my memory, and I wasn't holding on to hers. And that was the only way that I was able to do my time successfully, because if I was to think about Jayla every single day, every single minute, I would drive myself crazy. And I know that my judgment would have been clouded, right? Like, I'm inside of a prison. I don't know who's here to hurt me. I don't know who's here to do what. And it's just, like, a lot for me. And I could not... Like handle it i didn't know how and i didn't i didn't want to i didn't want to and i wanted to get through my time successfully and come home to her and healthy and strong and i knew that i couldn't do that by me thinking about her every single day all day and worrying about her i couldn't do it i couldn't do it so i just i blocked her out when i wasn't on the visiting floor no one knew i had a kid like when somebody would find out when they would see me on the visiting floor with her I'm like, oh, who's that little girl? That your sister? I'm like, no, that's my daughter. Like, you know? No one knew. And I was going through my time, like, the years just kept going by and no one knew I had a kid.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing so honestly and, and painfully yeah. imagine. You did talk about Jayla in our class, so I'm wondering if there was a time or space when that started to shift for you.
0: Yeah. So what started to happen was I felt comfortable with you because I knew that you were not. To harm me or judge me, you as my facilitator made me feel comfortable enough to share with you. Cause I knew that you were not going to harm me, and I felt comfortable enough to express those feelings to you. And I I could be vulnerable with you, cause I felt safe in that environment and that space that you created. You established a, a safer environment where I felt like I can be myself and I can let all of my shit down. Right. Like all my baggage I can leave at the front door. I don't have to hold it and hold it under my arm. that's where it started to shift. So I was like, I was able to talk to you about, you know, my daughter and me seeing her and her birthday's coming up or like little events in her life. But as soon as I walked out of your classroom, that was gone. It was back to shield and no one knows that I have a child. And remember confidentiality was a really strong and important rule and uh, a lot of the women respected that so i felt safe with their stuff and i appreciate them for not sharing none of my stuff so that was pretty you know cool for me so that mm. was the shift yeah
2: that's really wonderful to know and i think you know having containers in any space often allows us to do that you know not just in mm-hmm. prison it makes sense but specifically there with everything that you kind of up against so what are the questions that our producer nicolette Developed, which also speaks about the safe space of arts programs. Um, she mentioned that you were involved with rehabilitation through the arts, not only through my class, which is where I taught, but also through the theater program, where I got to jump in the last five days of production and be the only non-departemented <laughs> woman acting in the show. I was playing Eveline and I couldn't mm. stop smiling, and they'd say, Kate, you can't sing that song smiling. Ooh, and wow. I had to be mentored by all of you because you actually knew how to act. And here <laughs> I was, like, so nervous, you know. And you played Glinda the Good Witch, and you had a a pretty starring role, which you're fantastic. Really, really captivating. And, you know, thinking about these kind of experiences, not just the creative writing room, but also the theater space, um, broadly the impact of that, but also did that facilitate anything in terms of your parenting? And, of course, there was a big moment that happened that your daughter got to participate in.
0: Okay, so, yeah. I played like a lot of roles in that play, right? And the reason why Glenda was like a strong role for me was because I wanted to be a nice mom. You know, growing up be like you're gonna be the strict parent, you're gonna be the softy. And I just felt like I was going to be the nice parent, like the sweet parent, the bubbly parent, like the you can run all over me kind of parent. That's how I felt. So with Glenda, it was just so cute because was like all sparkly and soft and cute and she was just like great you know and my daughter was actually sitting in the audience i was like oh my god she's gonna see me like in this sparkly beautiful dress and i'm gonna be smiling and i'm not gonna be sad and i'm just gonna be happy so i walked down the stage like they looked up on the curtain and you just see me come out and i'm smiling i'm smiling from ear to ear and then i just start singing if you believe and my daughter was like pointing at me, kept pointing, kept pointing. And all I felt was just like pure joy. At that moment, I felt pure joy because I'm like, I'm doing this for her. This is what I'm doing this for. I'm making her happy, and she can see me like literally in person. And she doesn't have to see me in these green clothes. She can see me in this sparkly, beautiful dress and hold on to that, you know? And it was so, it was just so, I don't know, it was emotional for me, it was emotional for her. She was like in tears. Um, my dad was also there, my aunt was there, and just seeing me, I guess in the costume, I think it was a costume. It was a costume, because it was like, we see you differently, you look so beautiful, you're like an angel. It's like this light above you, then your clothes are sparkling, and you have this magical wand, and then you're singing to the audience and pointing. It was just, like, great, you know? <laughs> it looked like every little girl's fantasy, you
2: know, in and, and that outfit. That was something I would love as a child. And I remember, you know, a really profound moment. I I knew who your daughter was in the audience. For context, for listeners, we were in the gymnasium of the prison on stage. And I think it was the first time Bedford Hills had ever let family and friends come to see the play. So it was a really important moment. And for women who had acted for many years in the plays, this was the first experience of that. So we had in the morning performed for all women in the prison. So looking at it, a sea of women in in their greens, state greens. And then at night, we were looking at people's friends and family and, and people on the outside. And I remember watching on stage, even though I was supposed to be acting and looking at everyone, I was watching your daughter. I think she was sitting in your dad's lap or someone in your family's lap. And we were singing the words to home. And I just had this out of body moment because I was in a reverse kind of position from how I usually was in prison. I was now next to everybody who was incarcerated standing, undistinguishable, the people who didn't know me in the audience and looking out to people. And I wanna talk about that song and singing that song because I really felt moved by particularly knowing that was your daughter and knowing you. And I couldn't really show it, obviously. I had to keep singing. But thinking about that particular song, Home, which the lyrics are what, when I think of home, I think of a place with love overflowing. I wish I could go back there with the things I've been knowing. I mean, the song to sing to a prison audience was, I mean, it makes me emotional thinking about it. Maybe we can talk about both singing to other women you were incarcerated with, which felt really profound to me at the time, and then also singing to your family and what that was.
0: Oh God, so I'm like, now I'm like full of tears now, like I'm trying to hold them back. um, But that was so hard. Um, I just think that it was most hard for me because we couldn't go home, you know, like we were not able to go home. We had to stay and we're singing and we're saying like, when we think of home, it was like, you think of all the things you would have done different and the things you've done wrong and you're looking at somebody that may not ever come home and that may just be here forever. You know what I'm saying? Or like you're forever, whatever forever that looks like. And it's just like, you can't say, you can't say like, you come home tomorrow. And then you think about the things you've been knowing. Like if I knew what I know now, I probably would have never been here singing this song with you all. And I know I'm sounding like I'm babbling, but it's like, when I think of home, I think of all of these happy things, these stressful things, but I'd rather that than this home. I'd rather that, right? And that was hard to sing to each other because we had to rehearse it over and over and over. And it's like, it felt like torture in a way because you're like, bro, we're not going home. We're going to do a show inside of a gymnasium with offices all around you. You're not really going home. You know what I'm saying? And then the flip side of that is, like, you're in the audience, you know? Like, it gets my family every single time. That's why, I, like, I don't really talk about this part. <laughs> this is the first time I've talked about this since I did the play. I'm mean, going to be honest with you. I've never talked about this. Um, That's probably why I'm crying, because I have not – I never released it. Um, So I remember seeing my daughter in the audience, man. And she had on this fur jacket and this little cute skirt, little tutu skirt. And my dad was there. And – but I was there, and all you see on stage is us forming a line, a straight line across the stage. No one knows what's happening, but guess what? The actors know what's happening, right? And you hear us, you know, you hear the the instrumental, and Mike is playing, and they're doing their thing. Michael and Phyllis were on the keyboard, and they're just playing at first just the instrumental, And then all the music just stops, and then we start as an ensemble, right? And we start off, and we're like, when i think of home i think of a place where there's love overflowing i wish i was home i wish i was back there with the things i've been knowing and then right there at that part Everyone snots and boogers and you cannot hear anything else after that. I swear to God. It sounded like, it just sounded like everyone was like on the floor, bawling, crying. Because the first line you got out, we all got it out. And, you know, we're smiling. And then after that, we were no more good. The audience was crying. They were trying to sing along. You know, everybody standing up, they're clapping. You can't even hear us singing anymore. But we knew that. Ultimately, we weren't going home with our families, and they knew too. but that moment that we all shared together was like synchronicity, right We were all in sync at one time, even if I had an issue with the person standing next to me, and I probably didn't like her for whatever reason. I wanted to hug and kiss her right there. you know what I mean, and just say like, this is just our reality, and we're gonna be okay, but we're gonna get through this so the first two lines you heard, and after that, it was nothing else. that's what I remember me. So I'm just going to be honest. Wow. That was
2: one of the most profound experiences uh, of my (laughs) life. And it can sound like being a tourist in the space. I'm I'm aware of that. But it was because this is, what, two, three years into working with half the cast in in a different space where we're talking about our lives. So the relationships were deep at that point. So it was incredibly meaningful to share that. I think I stopped teaching at Bedford soon after that play. And it was really painful to not teach there anymore. It was heartbreaking to leave everybody behind. And so I watched this Huffington Post video that they made of the play like a million times because I was seeing you and Mary and all the women that, you know, I really cared about deeply. Whether they were talking in the video or not on stage, I was revisiting it just to be back in the presence of people that I missed. And you're featured very prominently in this video. And there's a really fantastic interview with you where you talk about how you were coming home two days before Christmas. And how you were planning on jumping out of a box for your daughter as a surprise Christmas present. And you made like a surprise. Yes, I did. Yes. Ta-da. Did you do that? And
0: what was your experience of being reunited like? So I'm gonna tell you right now, like as a disclaimer, I have that on video. Like I have it on video when I walked in the door and she had no idea what was happening. I literally have it on video, right? And I have the video of me walking out the door of the prison, I have that too. So first and foremost, that was really cool. Like how I was like, I'm coming home around because I said I'm gonna pop out the box and all of that. But let me tell you what happened. Jayla saw it. Like she would watch that interview and I didn't uh... think it was gonna go viral like that. Like. She was watching that video every single day. Do you hear what I'm telling you? Me and Jayla. Jayla more often. But yeah, me and Jayla. I'm telling you, she was watching the interview and I was like, dang. She was like, Yep, I know you're gonna come home and I know you're gonna come out and pop out of the box and I know what you're gonna do. So I'm gonna be expecting this big box in the living room on Christmas. So I was like, damn, I can't do that. I wanted to be a surprise, and I wanted to know her surprises because right? as soon as she sees the box she's gonna instantly know it's me right so i said okay so what we did was it was my mom it was me it was my sisters it was my father it was her father her other grandmother from her father's side her cousins it was like the whole family in the house at one time right in the living room you see jayla you see my mother and you see her little brother and you know her extended family on the other side And my mom is just talking to her, saying, hey, you know, I'm going on vacation, and all of these things, I wanted to bring a Christmas present to you. So Jayla's like, oh, Ma, I'm so happy. And all of these things, like, she's just being all mushy. mushy. She does not know that I'm in the back room at all. So I start walking out. You see me walking. And then you hear someone say, hi, Jayla. Right? Now, it's my sister, but she's, like, so ecstatic because she doesn't normally see all of my family at the same time. So she sees my sister, and everybody's like, hi, Jayla. And then I go, hi, baby. And she looks up and she goes, oh, I didn't know. Oh, mommy. And it was just like, after that, she was just like snots and boogers. I was snots and boogers. Like she was like, oh. and you see her face like that. And she held it like that for so long. Like she could not believe it. And she's touching my face the whole time. Like, are you really here? You know, she kept doing that. We had dinner. She did not let go. She was to sit on my lap the whole time. So that's what we did. We could not do the box.
2: My cheeks yeah. hurt from smiling. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. I have, like, another memory on the tip of my brain of you talking about some other gift for her that involved bracelets or a memory that involved something with bracelets. I feel like it was something about you thinking about telling your daughter that handcuffs were bracelets. Does this ring a bell?
0: Okay. Okay. So, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. So what happened was my great-grandmother died. I went to the funeral. And my daughter's sitting there, my mother, my nephew, and my sister. They did not know that I was coming to the funeral. So I arrived, and I have on my handcuffs. And I'm handcuffed to the front, not to the back. I'm handcuffed to the front. So I had on a tan jacket, and I tried to put my jacket down like this. I'm pulling my jacket so that you can't see my handcuffs. But mind you, I have a chain around my waist, and I have the shackles. I had the whole nine yards on. And Jayla's like, Oh, hey, mom. And, you know, I give her a hug and I give her a kiss and all of that. And she's like, well, what's those? And I was like, oh, those are mommy's silver bracelets. Mm. I didn't know what to say. You know, I'm like, shit. Like, you know, those are mommy's silver bracelets. And then she's looking at me. She's like, I want some bracelets. In my mind, I'm saying, like, Jesus Christ, like, you don't even understand what this really is. But, yeah, these are mommy's silver bracelets. And I was just, like, really good with coming up with shit on the fly, man. That's why you teach improv now, huh? I think so. I think I think that's exactly what it is because it's like I I come up with it literally on the fly. Like, what would make you say silver bracelets? Like, I don't I don't know, but I said it. I literally said silver bracelets, and she was like, "Oh, I want some silver bracelets." And I was like, "Oh my god, yeah." It was my grandmother's
2: funeral. Oh, I'm so sorry. I thought I was recalling a happy memory and took us right into (laughs) something really difficult. Wow. So, you know, tell me a little bit about how it's been feeling for the past year or so that you've been able to be mom at home oh man
0: so it's been I'm not gonna even lie it's been a roller coaster you know like you have all these thoughts in your mind like yeah it's gonna be like this and we're gonna do this and this is how it's gonna go and it does not go like that okay it doesn't go as you planned and when you tell God your plans he laughs okay just letting you know he really does laugh Just like you're laughing right now because they laugh i'm telling you i came home like yeah i'm gonna have this beautiful place i'm gonna have this apartment i'm gonna get jailed right away like all these things okay i came home i started working like three jobs it was like a mess right i'm literally still you know developing that bond with her and doing the school thing the parent teacher conference thing like the teachers getting to know me, cause I've been like not there for her whole life in school, like you know. So they're like, oh wow, who's this? This is oh, this is mom. Oh hey mom, you know. So that interaction, and then also like just learning her again. Like oh, I remember used to like this. No mom, I don't like that anymore. You know, and now she's becoming a young lady. <laughs> so <laughs> things are definitely changing, and especially the changing between us she's developing into herself she's not a little baby anymore i can't say oh my little baby It's like no mom you know i'm in junior high school and you know can we just go and get these sneakers and you know what i mean like it's just not how i planned it to be at all you know like picking out down to things like bra size it's like bro i didn't even <sighs> expect this like what are we doing right now i want to go to the park and hang out and go no, I want to like play my game and I want you to get me a cell phone, like that kind of thing. Like that's what's happening. So got the cell phone and she was really into like JoJo Siwa for a little while, took her to the concert in Connecticut, did that. Her birthday just passed. So what we did was I got her some sneakers that were customized with her name on it. She had um this silver and black dress. Her hair was all done up. She had a crown on, a black fur jacket. Like she looked, you know, really dapper, you know? And then we threw her a surprise dinner at Lumix. And Lumix is a hibachi restaurant where they cook the food in front of you. It was so dope. They did this whole show for us. Like, it was so amazing. Then they brought the cake out. We had, like, the confetti balloons, which we popped. And it was, like, confetti everywhere. And she enjoyed it. I'm not going to lie. I got her a bike. Like, she, you know, she really enjoyed her birthday. But I don't want to talk about all the roses because they are some thorns. Just going to be honest, you know. And we struggle sometimes with, like, the talking back. Or, like, I don't have to do this, and I don't want to do, like, you know, it's hard molding. I'm molding her back to how I want her to be, you know, and, like, the respect level and all of that. Like, she has the utmost respect for me, but she's becoming a young lady, you know. Now it's about to be high school, and then it's going to be college. So those hormones are starting to go a little haywire, and I'm like, Jayla, can you go and grab, what? it's like no it's not what it's not what no no no. it's what did you say mom or i didn't hear you can you repeat that and it was so crazy because i was like i can't wait i'm not gonna miss much when she mostly needs me like junior high school and the menstrual and the boys and the all of that the puberty i'm gonna be there to help her and girl i'm telling you i'm just like okay when is this part gonna be over like this is really aggravating it's really aggravating but um i love her she's great she's a good kid Honorable student, no complaints. She's a little bit talkative, but I think we know where she gets that from diary <laughs> of the mouth. She sings. When I first came home, we did a documentary with RTA and we were singing. Jayla and I were singing. Uh, so when that comes out, you'll definitely get first dibs on that too.
2: I can't wait. Yeah, oh, I love to hear all this. Yeah. What a gift, Dinesa thank you absolutely but no really like you went there today and you didn't have to you could have stopped at any moment you could have been like listen Kate, it's, it's too much but i think that something that you've consistently modeled in the time that i've known you is a journey of vulnerability and how to really model for other people that when we really own our story and experiences and we're honest about it it opens space for other people to get to do that too i saw you do that with some of your close friends who came into the room with <laughs> arms crossed, sour face. Okay. I don't write. Okay. I'm through this. Yeah, and I'm not doing this. I'm gonna leave. And then, you know, okay. ha ha ha, they didn't leave. <laughs> and you were a huge part of that. That was your close friend. And you were like, listen, this is what we do in here. Welcome, yeah. come yeah. on, yeah. let me show you how. And, and so you lead through that and here you are still leading through that. So I can't thank you enough,
0: it's been incredibly
2: special conversation oh, God. thank you
0: so much for having me i'm so excited i would love to come back i don't know how that works but like, I, this is amazing this is great hi
1: i'm Francis cohan pen america's prison and justice writing program gap year fellow i had the pleasure of researching and writing this episode's introduction as well as editing the episode itself Nicolette Natalie provided the guiding questions and recorded the intro. The conversation itself was engaged by program director, Kate Meisner. Thank you for listening. And if you haven't already, I invite you to check out part one of this episode, an interview with Ebony Underwood, founder of We Got Us Now, about her experience as the child of a long time incarcerated parent. Further learn and advocate by reading our full temperature check issue 10, Family Through the Walls at pen.org slash works of justice.